I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. If you listened to my last episode with Nancy, you heard us talking about the qualities that we think of when we think of the archetypal good therapist. I hope you can hear the scare quotes in my voice. The good therapist isn't necessarily the type of therapist you want to be. It's not the most actualized version of you as a therapist. It's not even necessarily a particularly effective therapist. That's one of the most important takeaways from my discussion with Nancy, I think, that the good therapist is not the effective therapist, and that sometimes being an effective therapist means doing things that violate that archetype. The good therapist is about being seen as good and about being able to reassure ourselves that we are good when maybe we don't feel so sure. And we all live with that to some degree or another, maybe less so when we're feeling more confident, when our clinical work is smoother sailing, when our colleague relationships are authentically supportive, when our clients are making tangible improvements that really seem connected to what we are doing in session, those beautiful moments we cherish where we get to see, hey, this is working, it's really working. And then there are other times when that specter of the good therapist comes back to haunt us a bit. Maybe it's when we bump up against a case or a few cases at the same time where we genuinely feel at a loss as to what to do with this client. Maybe it's when we have something heavy going on in our personal lives and find our minds repeatedly drifting away from a client in session and back to our own problem of the week because a good therapist wouldn't do that, right? Maybe the good therapist peeks through the office window, judging us when we go against some of the established norms that Nancy and I talked about last episode, like when we use self-disclosure more than other therapists might think we should, or talk more in session than we think we're supposed to, or whatever else gives us the sense that we're stepping outside of some kind of normative bounds. And one of the times, one of the periods of time, that I think this specter of the good therapist has been much more activated for almost all of us has been during the past two years, during the pandemic. And that is because the pandemic made the gap between who we believe we should be as therapists, and I should say who we believe other therapists should be too, because therapists can be relentless about policing each other. But that gap between who we believe we should be and who we actually are as therapists has been suddenly much, much harder to bridge. See if any of this sounds familiar to you. When we were getting the first of our spring weather in mid-March 2020, watching the COVID news roll in with increasing certainty that this was going to be a very big deal, I made the call to switch my practice to 100% telehealth from 0%. This was early pandemic, right? So we didn't know that much about how the virus was transmitted. And there was this fear of service contamination and hardly anyone was wearing masks yet. And we were being told to stay home as much as possible to prevent transmission as much as possible. So I stayed home. I live in a small old two-bedroom house, and while my husband and I scrambled to get a home workspace set up for me, I spent the first couple of weeks doing my sessions in the cab of his truck in front of our house. I found myself groping for the usual cues of body language and real-time, real-space attunement to my clients and having to recalibrate how I did therapy to get by without those things. 
I learned to manage the voice strain and eye strain from talking and staring into my iPad all day and tried to provide an oasis of calm for my clients while simultaneously worrying about whether my business would ever recover from the early pandemic wave of terminations, trying not to go stir crazy from cabin fever and social isolation, and of course, managing the fear of potential serious illness for myself and everyone I loved, including my impending baby. I was not baking sourdough. I was dragging myself in front of a screen every morning to talk about COVID all day long. Every day for a while, nearly every client wanted to talk about COVID. Of course they did, and it was totally appropriate for them to do so. But it meant that for a while, I woke up heavy with dread every morning, knowing that I was going to have to get up and talk to people about this thing that I too was afraid of and affected by all day long. No escaping it no denial all day long. I remember crying one morning over breakfast, the morning springtime sun streaming through the window over my toast because the dread was so heavy. Before the pandemic, when was the last time you remember crying with dread before a day of sessions? Community mental health workers accepted, of course. We know you have a lot to cry about before work, pandemic or no, but I think you know what I'm getting at. So At the beginning of this vignette, I asked if any of this sounded familiar to you. The thing is, I know it does because I know therapists. Therapists are my friends, my colleagues, my fellow students in trainings, my clients. And of course, there are always the Facebook groups where sometimes we get a little window into what therapists will say when the rest of the world isn't looking. And I also saw the photo on the cover of the New York Times for that piece they did about the impact of the pandemic on mothers. Did you see it? The photo of a mother who was also a therapist taking an emergency call from a client holding the phone between her ear and her shoulder in the bathroom of her apartment while bending over the toilet helping her toddler go potty. So I know the experience I just described is familiar. I know how many of you were rushing to set up a home workspace that somehow looked professional enough and trying to figure out how to dampen the noise of toddlers and dogs running through your hallways and bumping up against your spouse or roommates doing their Zoom work meetings from the other side of the wall all of a sudden. I know that some of you are doing intense trauma processing work over telehealth while sitting in your bedroom three feet away from where you sleep. All the energetic boundaries that you had relied on physical space to provide instantly obliterated. I know that some of you are bribing and pleading with your school-age kids at the kitchen table who are going bonkers from the switch to remote schooling so that you could try to get that 50 minutes without them knocking on your door during a session. I know that you are exhausted at the end of the day in a way you had never experienced as your brain tried to adjust to the sensory differences between online and in-person work. I know you were spending what should have been your free time trying to figure out all the new insurance billing rules that had changed overnight. I know that some of you are managing teenage kids in mental health crisis, stressed marriages, and fears about your own physical health. I know you were mourning the loss of client relationships that the pandemic suddenly ended, and I know your head was spinning from the pivoting you had to do, not just in terms of in-person versus telehealth, but in the direction of your clinical work, at least for the time being. So I know you were going through all this. We were going through all this. And yet at that time, I remember logging on to therapist Instagram and seeing a post about how to prevent yourself from being traumatized by the pandemic. I remember that one really specifically. 
a little infographic of tips on how not to be traumatized, as if preventing traumatization by a life-changing world event is a matter of implementing a list of tips. And there were articles, I'm sure you saw some of them, advice from therapists on handling pandemic anxiety, you know, how to maintain your mental health during the pandemic, how therapists are maintaining their own mental health during the pandemic, as if we are so good at that and have some kind of inside info on remaining unaffected by terrible events. And these articles were always everything that you would expect. Developing comfort with uncertainty and being in the moment and getting into your physical body and just all the things, I'm sorry, but just all the things that are exactly what you would expect a therapist to say. Now, if you made one of those sweet little infographics, if you are one of the people that got interviewed for one of those articles, you talked to Business Insider or whatever, um, I'm not canceling you. I'm not trying to talk shit. But that gap, right? That gap between the therapist that I saw and that I was behind the scenes who were stressed to the max, scrambling, trying to hold things together clinically, personally, in all the ways, thinking on our feet, improvising, and having a really hard time. And the therapist that I saw in the public sphere telling people that they could use a list of mindfulness tips to prevent being traumatized by a collective trauma, that gap is so vast as to be dishonest. It is not professionalism. It is not appropriate, you know, separation of the clinical and personal spheres. It is dishonesty. Or if it is professionalism, then professionalism is dishonesty. And perhaps that's a conversation we will have another time. But that gap is dishonesty, and that is the danger of the good therapist archetype. I want to be clear that when I say dishonesty, I am not accusing anyone of lying or of deliberately misrepresenting anything. I believe that most of us really do want to do a good job at this work. But that's the thing. When we are taken in, when we are seduced by the need to conform to the good therapist archetype, whatever the motivation, whether that's partially a marketing thing or it's a genuine desire to help people, even when we have no idea actually how to, or the desire to at least keep up appearances when it feels like we're falling apart or because we derive comfort from a sense of ourselves as an expert who has knowledge to disseminate, whatever. When we are pulled in by that need to conform to this vision of what a good therapist is to the point that it edits out the truth, we are alienating ourselves and each other and we are doing a disservice to the population of humans out there who see us as a source of wisdom and support. And the truth is, in this situation, the pandemic, and just quickly, I want to allude to the other very significant moments in the collective experience that have occurred over the past couple of years, the George Floyd uprising the major political unrest in the United States, serious climate change driven disasters, and now the war in Ukraine, all of this together, the truth of this period of time is one of collective trauma. For people in general, and certainly professional caregivers in particular, that's us. So look, I feel pretty comfortable making the assertion that we therapists are not, by virtue of us being therapists, particularly wise or insightful about how to handle collective trauma. This is an area in which we are very much just people. 
And unless you are a therapist whose life as just a person has included being part of, say, a cultural group that has a historical experience of collective traumatization and an intact living system of strategies for how to contain and metabolize collectively traumatizing experiences, you probably don't have any reason to think you have any more wisdom than the average non-therapist person about how to weather and mitigate the impact of collective trauma. We certainly aren't trained in it, right? Uh, my graduate program for one, and I don't think it's unusual, had a single trauma class, one, that we had to take as part of our graduation requirements, which of course is not even enough to even really scratch the surface of run-of-the-mill individual trauma processing work. And I have extensive postgraduate training in multiple trauma processing modalities, which I obviously believe are very effective and valuable frameworks, but only one of them even references the possibility that a practitioner might share a collective trauma experience with a client. And none of them reference the possibility that a therapist and client might be enduring an unfolding collective trauma simultaneously at the time the therapy is taking place. The idea that these modalities should address or take this possibility into account may be a lot to ask, I know, at least up to now. But the fact that they don't, right? The fact that we were, as a community of professionals, completely unprepared for this situation has meant that in many ways we are in uncharted waters as therapists. And I think it's important to say explicitly here, that when we are talking about being in uncharted waters as a therapist, that doesn't just mean some sort of nebulous theoretical sense of, oh, gee, this is a new experience and I'm not sure what to do. It means being in uncharted waters in that specific hour that we are spending with that specific client, and in this case, over and over again, all day, ad nauseum, until we have managed to get our bearings somehow, some way. And that situation is one in which the good therapist archetype becomes very activated, right? Because the good therapist doesn't like uncharted waters. The good therapist likes knowing what to do. The good therapist doesn't like the fuzzy boundaries between us, the therapists, and them, the clients, that are inevitably created when we are concurrently sharing the experience of a collective trauma with our clients. I think even if we are most of the time successfully coloring outside the lines of this good therapist archetype in our clinical work, even if we have developed the differentiation to not put too much stock in it, we like to feel that we've chosen that, right? If I am a different kind of therapist than other people think that I should be, or I've been told that I should be, I like to think that I've made that choice for myself, that I am doing so from an empowered place that is about ownership of the type of person I am, and the type of therapist I want to be. But the ways that the pandemic thrust us into this tension with the good therapist archetype were not chosen. And to come to ownership of that tension has certainly been more difficult for me at least to arrive at than some of the things that Nancy and I talked about last episode. Like the fact that I am this opinionated, loud extrovert in a professional sea of very nice and accommodating people, which I am not. I can own that now, but this pandemic stuff, that has been harder. And it has been especially harder, you know, partially because of the highly individualized nature of this job where most of us are going into our work days every day alone. And partially because the specter of the good therapist 
keeps us from being as honest as we could be about what we're going through, especially when we think non-therapists can see and we risk breaking down the facade between us and them. When we find ourselves in this kind of tension with the good therapist archetype, that's when we end up encountering a lot of those questions that go like, am I the only one? Am I the only one who has no idea what I'm doing all of a sudden? Am I the only one suppressing a primal scream of protest when yet another client wants to spend their session talking about COVID? Am I the only one who thinks that we're all going to be traumatized by this and there's nothing I can do to stop it? Am I the only one who's crying with dread before another day of COVID telehealth sessions in those early pandemic days of spring 2020? No, you weren't. And I'm going to say to you now something like what I wish we therapists had been saying to the world two years ago when everything was irrevocably changing underneath our feet. Instead of giving mindfulness and resilience tips and trying to look like we were holding it all together for everybody else. Something like this. We will all be injured by this. We have all been injured by this. You, me, all of us. We will all bear scars from this. We all bear scars from this. You, me, all of us. It will take time to fully understand and to map the parameters of those scars. And the healing will come not from grasping at the straws of the idea of resilience, but from a commitment to holding and telling the enormity of the truth together in public. We're going to have to get good at this, you guys. The cultural context in which our field really grew and flourished was very much the context of the post-World War II West. And I think it's fair to say America in particular. So the post-World War II white, prosperous American social context. That context is the epicenter of where therapy has really been conceptualized and how it has been practiced by most therapists. And of course, there are a million problems with that, that many of my colleagues of color or who are from working class and poor backgrounds or countries outside the global north have been articulating for a very long time. But what I'm wanting to highlight here is that a therapy developed in that context of immense prosperity and privilege is one that is woefully unprepared for weathering the realities of collective trauma. And we are not like done with collective trauma. For one thing, we are not at the end of the pandemic, but even if we were, the reality of the future that we can expect to unfold seems to be one of increasing political instability and certainly climate disaster. I know that's not a pretty thing to think about, but if we are committed to doing this work, and if we believe this work can continue to be relevant into the future, and I do, that is the future we need to be preparing for as therapists. And this moldy old 20th century, post-World War II, pre-pandemic archetype of the good therapist is not going to help us prepare ourselves and our field for a future in which we will continue to be expected to be some of the people that help everyone else make meaning of and manage the impact of collective trauma. The good therapist, hear my scare quotes again, can't do that. So let's start thinking about who can. On a personal note, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the recent yard site, that's the Yiddish word for death anniversary, of one of my teachers, Ron Cohen of Bennington College. I think it's important to recognize our lineages in this work, and he was part of mine. Ron was my very first psychology professor ever, social psychology, 
And while he certainly taught me a lot about social psychology and kept the fires of my fascination with human beings burning through the many ups and downs of my undergrad years, he taught me something even more important about what it means to be someone who matters to other people. Ron was deeply invested in his students. He saw through our barely post-adolescent baggage straight to the substrate of our potential, and he was unflaggingly committed to doing what he could to elicit it to the best of his ability. To see and to experience the seriousness and enthusiasm and compassion with which he treated his students taught me something crucial about what it means to be someone who invests in the best of human beings. And I try to take that to work with me every day. Ron had great expectations of me. And while I didn't really understand what he was pushing me so hard towards at 18, 19, 22, here at almost 40, I do. And Ron, I wish you could see me now. We miss you. Thanks everyone for spending this time with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. Please rate, review, and subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. And if something I've said today has gotten your wheels turning and you have something you want to share with me, I'd love to hear it. You can send me an email or voice note at reva at Looking forward to talking to you next time. Bye.